Welcome to the Normal Christian Life Podcast with Pastor Stephen Samuel. As you listen, we know that you will be encouraged and challenged to follow the normal Christian life that Jesus offers to us. We would love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life, so please visit us online at icathedral.org. You can also find useful information about our church and other resources that will help you grow in your journey with Christ. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I was born in South India, and uh, in a very poor, poor area of South India, in the slums. And my parents were first-generation Christians. And when they gave their life to the Lord, uh, my dad's family rejected him. My mom's family rejected her, and so we were dirt poor. And by dirt poor, I literally mean like dirt poor. In fact, the house that I was born in had dirt floors. That's how poor we were. It was a one-bedroom, one-room house, if you will. One side of the room was a kitchen. The other side of the room is where we slept, and that's about the extent of the house. Right, and there was no bathrooms. There was no public uh, toilets or anything. I mean, public. No, what do you call it? indoor plumbing? It was just a little outhouse in the back kind of thing. I think it was an outhouse. There's probably just a hole in the ground. I don't see me all getting grossed out. Just keep eating those nachos. Um, <laughs> but that's where I was born, you know. And I'm 36 years old now, and I look back at my life, and as I've seen God do just phenomenal things in my life, I have to say, you know, I'm not anybody super special. I think God desires to do the same thing in everybody's life. And listen, if he can take me from the slums of South India and bring me to where I'm at now and no telling where he's going with it, you are not an exception. You're not. God wants to do tremendous, powerful things through your life for his kingdom if you'll just allow him to do it. And tonight, that's kind of the road we're going to go down. I remember when I first came to the U.S., um, my parents... My parents, of course, came with them, and I was about five years old, and uh, I kind of had this, this, of course, they didn't think of terms of it for it, but I kind of had this identity crisis, if you will, and I think everybody has it in the sense that you're always trying to define who you are, right? Even in college life right now, you're defining a little bit of who you are. Well, I'm a biology major, I'm a chemist, I'm a medical major, I'm a undecided, <laughs> whatever it is. You're trying to define yourself a little bit, at least at the college life, by what you study. Some of you guys, over the summer, you picked up a couple of titles or identities, I should say. You went to a camp. You were a camp counselor. You were a, you know, whatever you did. Does that make sense? And so a lot of times, those, I know they can be job descriptions, but I remember when I first came to the U.S., I had a few things that defined me. And so I kind of put them on my little, this is who I was. I was a, what they called a third culture kid. I was stuck between two cultures. I was born in India. At my house, we practiced the Indian culture, but at, outside of my house, we lived in American culture. And so life was quite confusing because it's the clash of two worlds. And by cultural clash, I mean like at my house, it was very patriarchal. Dad ran the show kind of society. Kids didn't make a lot of noise. They didn't have a lot of fun. It was just you know, get a good education. Education was really big in Indian culture. It still is. In fact, the suicide rate in India right now of high school students that don't make straight A's is would kind of blow your mind because it's an honor system in the family. You bring dishonor to the family if you don't make the mark. And many students every year by the hundreds commit suicide in my hometown because they don't make the dean's list or make like first in class. And I know we can look at that and think that's just retarded. Like, those guys are super smart, but, you know, that's the culture, right? So I remember coming into to the United States, and as a third culture kid, we went to, I went to a private school, a little Christian school out in Orange, Orange uh, 
Texas Community Church out there? Some of y'all from there? Yeah. I don't know why they call it orange. There's nothing orange in it. It's brown. Be kind of goofy calling it brown, wouldn't it? Anyway, so, and then I was a pastor's kid. My dad came here as a missionary. Um, he, when we were in India, when he gave his life to the Lord at 16, um, had a dream. The Lord Jesus appeared to him, spoke to him to come to the United States. And so in his dream, you know, the Lord spoke to him. So he woke up, sold his little motorcycle, bought an airline ticket, and started traveling. And planted churches at the age of 16, 17, and 18. He planted hundreds of churches throughout South India and Malaysia. I don't know how he did it. We were dirt poor, but he did it. And then we got to the United States. And then, of course, being a preacher's kid, any PKs in here, raise your hand. Oh, I didn't know you were a preacher's kid. Oh, my gosh. Okay, raise your hand again. Got charity distracted me. Preacher's kids. Now, you can understand me, all right? You can understand this, and it's not hard for everybody to understand. The preacher's kids, people assume that they're just going to be this morally astute, you know, don't make any mistakes, discipled, matured, miniature pastor. And that's the furthest from the truth most of the time because preacher's kids are like all kids. They make the same mistakes. They, they see more junk in the church than anybody else. And sometimes preacher's kids tend to have this reputation of being probably the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, destructive force in the church. <laughs> so I was that kid. I was the preacher's kid. I was rebellious. I hated church people. Sometimes it sneaks up on me every once in a while, you know. And so I was a preacher's kid. And so as a result of that collision of cultures being stuck in the swoops, the, the box of a preacher's kid, I found that even as a kid, I struggled with depression a lot. And I struggled with suicidal thoughts a lot. And I would say probably from the time I was in, that I can, my earliest memories of third grade, second grade, all the way till I was 16, 17 years old, that was my life. That's who I was. And it was like I had this sign hanging around my neck, and that's everybody asked me who I was. I hated talking to people. I know most of y'all find that hard to believe. I hated talking to people. I just, I mean, there were times people thought I couldn't speak because I just didn't like to talk. And I remember wearing this around me for so long that it began to kind of define who I was. In fact, I begin to believe this is who I am. And as gloomy as that sounds, it was a reality. I didn't like myself. And I think most of us have probably been in that place where we just don't like ourselves, And so we try to hang out with other people or do other things that get us to a place of not thinking about who we are. We can focus on what somebody else is or better yet, what somebody is not. And our identity begins to get wrapped up in something other than dealing with who we really are. So that was probably most of my childhood years. And then right up against till I got to High school, at 16 years old in 1994, is that right? 1994, I went to a youth camp out in Dallas and uh, powerfully got touched by the, the, the presence of God. The Lord Jesus appeared to me and told me, you're going to be a preacher. You're going to preach this gospel in more, more words than, than I'm saying. And it rocked my world. I was, you know, snot on the ground. I was crying and he showed up and it was just powerful. And then I walked out of that, like from, went from a gothic, um, hating the world, suicidal, hating God, hating people, 
lifestyle. And you think, well, it, was, it wasn't just, you know, it didn't happen overnight. So many things happened in my life. We lost our family, lost a sister, our oldest sister. We struggled through death. We struggled through church splits. We struggled through financial loss. We struggled through poverty. I remember getting food stamps as a kid and trying to try to not act like we were poor when we couldn't hide the fact that we were living in a little trailer, a little 28 by 12 trailer in poverty. And I hated life. And my earliest memories were not like happy memories. They were really pretty horrible memories. And then at 16 years old, Jesus invaded that world. And he came and he said, Stephen, I've called you. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I called you. And I gave you a commission to be a prophet to the nations. And dude, I went from this dark, secluded, introverted kid to literally the next day, this beacon of just hope arising in my heart. And when he told me I wanted to preach, I would have thought everything in my system would have said no because I'd seen how bad my dad was treated. But he put the calling on my life. And I began to preach the gospel immediately. Things were coming out of my mouth that I didn't know were in my head. It was great. You didn't even have to work at this. It was just a gifting that came into my life. And I began to preach the gospel. And then I went... As soon as I graduated high school, went to Lamar University, and then I, the day after I graduated high school, I became a youth pastor. The local church called me up and said, will you come be our youth pastor? I said, man, y'all don't have high standards, and so yes, I will come. And me and my little brown self had a youth group of 12 white kids, and it was great. And so I wore this little box around my, my myself, and this was my identity. You know, I was a I was a Christian. I was proud of it. I didn't have a lot of theology behind me, a lot of training, but I'd sat in the church my whole life. And so, you know, I, I knew all the basics of Christianity, you know, or at least I thought I did, I should say. And I found myself constantly struggling with this issue of sin in my life, this issue of struggling to be righteous and struggling to be holy. And it was just like this never ending battle. I felt like I was always at the washeteria getting myself cleaned up. You know what I'm saying? I've never been there, right? But I'm constantly battling sin. I'm constantly battling negative thoughts or lustful thoughts or, or battling anger or battling depression. Like, God, will you just come and get me out of this mess? And after a while, I got to this place where I was like, this Christian, Christian thing really stinks. Because I was happy and miserable before, and now I have a hope that I don't have to be miserable, but I'm miserable. Right? And the box just didn't quite fit. And, you know, I was trying to follow a standard of beliefs, a system of being good, of trying to make God happy, because deep-seated in my heart, I had this idea that to be a Christian, I had to, I had to be a good person to keep God happy because God was mad at me. God was mad at me. That's why all those bad things maybe happened in my life as a kid. God was trying to get my attention through bad circumstances, and I just fought him too long. And now I might die and go to heaven, maybe. But there's a good chance I'm condemned. And listen, I struggled with that as a youth pastor. Preaching the gospel and telling kids things that I knew I believed in my head, but I never experienced in my life. I was 19 years old. Youth pastor. There's a little bitty church in Port Arthur. I don't know what possessed them to hire me, but they did. 
And sometimes it was awesome. The presence of God would come and I'd preach and kids' lives would be changed. And sometimes it was horrible. And I was like, I wouldn't come to my own youth group. You know what I'm saying? It was that bad. And then I started college. And I didn't know what I was doing in college. I just felt like God told me to go to college and get a degree. And from a child, I'd always adopted this belief that I was a dummy. <laughs> that I wasn't really that smart, that other people would understand things a lot faster than I would. So I struggled with my grades, dude. I struggled to make, you know, everybody's shooting for A, B, honor row. I'm shooting for the C line. You know what I'm saying? I just want to get the, to get the GPA past the 2.0 and I'll be good, you know? And I struggled studying. I struggled, you know, getting scholarships, definitely academic scholarships, because I didn't have all the brains. And so I worked a job. And finally, somewhere in there, I hit a road bump, and I said, you know what? This ministry thing is just a bunch of crap. (laughs) Can I just be honest? I quit. I'm tired of making hardly any money and working 50, 60 hours a week. I quit. You know what I'm saying? And so I went out, and I got me a great job at McDonald's. How many of you have worked at McDonald's? Raise your hand. Be honest. No one has worked at McDonald's? I was going to give away a cheeseburger. I went to McDonald's, and I was 19 years old, started a youth pastor, I was youth pastoring, and I got a job at McDonald's as well because the youth ministry wasn't enough to make money. And I was living at home, but I had a car note, blah, blah, blah. You know the story how it goes. At 19 years old, I started in the grill, flipping burgers in the Bridge City McDonald's, the only brown kid in a white store. You know what I'm saying? Bridge City was still segregated back in those days. And so I got all the racial slurs. I got all the abuse. I worked hard. I'd show up at work at right after college, like 3 or 4 o'clock in the evening, and work till midnight every night. And in one year's time, I went from the grill to the different departments inside the little store to managing two stores. I was a workaholic. Workaholic. I was the youngest manager in Texas at that time. And uh, I hated fast food. I felt like french fries were coming out of my hair. It was horrible. And after one year at McDonald's, I decided, well, forget that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something else. I wanted to go into the medical career. And a friend of mine was a doctor. He hired me, and I became a lab tech. An allergy specialist actually hired me, and I became a, the, one of those guys that poke your arm and you know measure the little circles, you know that test? I did that. I loved that job. Especially when people were mean. Then I'd be like, hold still. <laughs> right? So I did the lab tech thing. And then I, after that, that job closed. I, I worked at Walmart for a little while. Anybody worked at Walmart? Surely we got some Walmart people. All right. Worked at Walmart. Not in any department, but in the tire and lube section where the real men go. You know what I'm saying? Could flip, change oil flip around tires. I did it. And during that time, I quit Lamar because I didn't have any money. And so I worked and was youth pastoring. And so long story short, fast forward a little bit. After after about you know three or four months at Walmart and every night coming home and literally taking that orange degreaser stuff and cleaning out my fingernails and scrubbing it out of my black hair. Can't tell the difference between the oil in my hair. It was just horrible. I decided I'm going to go back to college. So I re-enrolled back at Lamar to finish my bachelor's degree. At the same time, I got a job as a radio producer at a local radio station. And uh, that sounds like a really fancy job. You just hit record and play. That's about all you do. And, uh, you know, make sure you do it at the right time so there's no dead air. And so that's all I did. And then I got my degree as an invest, as a BBA in economics. Hallelujah. I don't know how I passed, but I passed. And I passed with actually pretty good GPA, like a three point something. I can't remember because it's, you know, not important. 
and I got my job. My first job at the bank was at an old bank here called South Trust Bank. And the South Trust Bank got bought by Bank One and then Chase Bank and then Wachovia and blah, 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 blah. And I've made my way up that corporate ladder. And as I was making my way up that corporate ladder, I began to identify myself as I'm a business person. This is my purpose in life. I'm here. I'm going to make a good job. I'm going to have a great salary. I'm going to get married, have wife and kids, a nice little three bedroom, three bedroom, two bath brick house and have a nice life. And man, I was just on the track. But, you know, every day I'd come home after work from dealing with client after client after client and just this reminding feeling of that depression as a child would keep popping up like this is not what it's about. And it's not that what I was doing was wrong or was out of God's will. There was just no life in it. And so I began to move forward in my life and the Lord sent my wife. So me and my wife, we got married in 2006, five. It was a blur, dude. It was all a blur. 2005, we got married, and now I'm a dad of four boys, and there's one of them, Judah, right there. I have four boys. And you know, I'll tell you, being a dad is probably the best, one of the best things. Being a husband and being a dad is one of the most exciting things. I I never have a dull moment at my house. Just ask Elizabeth over here. Never have a dull moment. But you know, even in being a dad, there's such an ability, a propensity to try and say, this is what it's about. And I began to, it's easy for me to jump into that track of this is what it's really about. Kids and wives and, you know what I'm saying? Building yourself up as a family man and taking care of things and better house for your kids, better car for your kids, better toys for your kids, better things for your wife, better vacations, better date nights, better. And you can get wrapped up in that. And we know what I found out. I know a lot of guys that I talk to in this situation where this is life and this is not a bad thing. But it's not a fulfilling thing because eventually what happens is divorces kick in and kids rebel and the purpose for which you've lived kind of backfires on you. The ones that you've been running for kind of start tripping you up. And you've heard maybe still more stories than you can count of perfect families being shattered. Perfect families being shattered. And As much as I'd like to say I could hang on to this box or hang on to this identity, you know, I kind of remember making shifts in my thinking of like, you know, I'm just going to go back to um, right after we got married, I lost my job. So I've been unemployed. Yay. That's great. Not really been unemployed. You know, and I remember like, God, what am I going to do? I've got a house note. I got a car note about to get married, you know, and uh, what do I do? Huh? We're already married. What do I do? And then the doubts begin to come. What am I supposed to do? And then God, by his grace, answered, and I got a job at Verizon Wireless selling cell phones for the nation's best, most reliable network. (laughs) I've said that a few times. (laughs) And then we started moving down this journey, my wife and I, this journey of finding God's will. Not that we were ignorant to it, but just how does that look in my life? Then I went from that career to working for Daichi Sankyo, which is a pharmaceutical company selling drugs. I was a drug dealer, a professional drug dealer at that. (laughs) Don't worry, it was just blood pressure medicine and cholesterol, so you couldn't get too crazy with blood pressure and cholesterol. You know what I'm saying? Take too much, you just fall over. That's about it. (laughs) And so I remember climbing the corporate ladder, and I was climbing the corporate ladder. I remember one time 
we were on this retreat, well, not a retreat, conference in Las Vegas, and we were at the Pure, which is one of like the biggest nightclubs there in Vegas. Our pharmaceutical company had rented the whole upstairs of the Pure, and while we were there, you know, all the celebrities were there on the bottom floor, all the desperate housewives were there. I was like, keep me away from them, please, right? They were all there, and it was just, you know, free drinks on the house. You know, the company was paying for everything. It was this huge mansion of a hotel. We were all in there. And I sat there, me and my friend Greg were the only two believers in the whole pharmaceutical whatever place we were in of five 5,000-something people. And we looked at each other, and I said, man, I just can't do this. This is not what it's about. I was at the top of my corporate ladder. I was making a lot of really good money. I had my own personal car. I had a budget to just eat everywhere I wanted to go, dine with doctors, go to fly to all these places. I mean, it was just the perfect life, if you will, that you see in all the movies, and it just wasn't quite satisfying. And listen, I know some of you guys, we you might may not admit it right away, but in the back of your mind, you're like, man, that's what I want. I want to have a great job with great income and extra money to spend and just, you know, fly all over the place and look at the world and all this stuff. And, you know, you can get there. And I got there. I believe I was 20, 26, 27 years old when I started with the pharmaceutical company. I was young. I was one of the youngest guys there, eager, hardworking. I mean, I worked from dawn to dusk to make the numbers, to get the commissions and make it happen. And, you know, at the end of all that, at the end of months and months and months of that, I was there for two years, I found that, you know, I wasn't really any further than I wanted to be in my walk with Jesus. And there wasn't, I wasn't any further in my pursuit of satisfaction. And listen, I'm a, I, was, I was a believer. I loved the Lord. But it was like I was trying to fit myself into this identity of climbing the corporate ladder. And then I... At some point, I said, I'm gonna, I can't do this anymore. And I resigned my job at Daiichi Senkyo Pharmaceuticals. And I took on a job as an associate pastor at a church, as a youth pastor, and eventually became the associate pastor at a church. And we were there, and for eight years, eight and a half years, me and my wife were there, and we worked with young people, with, with, uh, with the teenagers, and eventually release was birthed out of that, that ministry. And it started growing and growing and growing. And I think, you know, even in this, and this is kind of where it gets fun, even in that, you can start wearing boxes. Where you begin to identify yourself as like, I'm just a preacher, I'm a minister, and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And you can start identifying or finding identity in what you do for God, and still it's not quite satisfying. And I can tell you it's true because I sit across the desk from with many pastors who are burned out, loving on people, taking care of the poor, taking care of the orphans, the widows, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, day after day after day after day. And at the end of it, they just feel lost somewhere in all that doing for God. They've lost the God that they were doing things for. It's not a given that if you end up in the ministry, your walk is going to be closer to God. In fact, you'll find it's the hardest place sometimes to stay close to him because you deal with a lot of people that have expectations that are unrealistic. And during that time, God was beginning to stir my heart to go to the nations. And in in five to six years' time, I started going on mission trips And we'd go to these countries that were closed countries, some of them not closed countries, and preach the gospel. I'd take teams. Some of you guys have been with me to to Peru, to Africa, to Turkey, to India, to China. We'd start going to these countries. And I remember this one incident, and this is where where I felt like, not that it was a specific time, but 
this one thing kind of was a milestone. I was in Africa, in North Africa, in a little village outside of Maradi. There's about two, 300 people in this little village that we went out to preach at. I wasn't even preaching. A friend of mine was there and asked him to, to, to preach in predominantly a Muslim village. I mean, there was no churches or nothing in there. And he got up and he preached the gospel. And I'd been training our guys about how to establish God's kingdom in places of darkness by speaking life, speaking healing, speaking salvation over people praying for God to heal their bodies, to open their eyes. And as, as, they, as he finished preaching and we gave what we call the altar call here, but we don't do that in Muslim countries because people don't respond. We just said, if anyone is sick, y'all come up and we want to pray with you. And uh, so people started coming up and I was tired. It was about 150 degrees out there. It was really hot and we were out in the sand and there's straw huts and stuff. And I was tired and I was like, Lord, you brought me out here to do what you call me to do, to preach the gospel in nations. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't have like this supercharged spiritual atmosphere going around me. I was just tired. And I'd been battling things at home, and I ended up on the mission trip and battling things in our finances. And as I was out there, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me and said, listen, you have a calling on your life, and you keep putting boxes on yourself to try to define it instead of just getting close to me, instead of just letting me be the thing that identifies you. And as I was dealing with that issue in my heart, this lady came up to me and she had, she had a baby in her arms, you know, wrapped around in Africa. The, the san, sanitation level is pretty low. And so all the kids have like flies on their faces and it's not really pretty, but it's just the way it is. And she, through the translator, told me that her child could not walk. She was, he was about two and a half, maybe three years old and uh, well past the age that he should be walking because there's a bunch of kids running around his age. And so I said, God, what do you want to, what do I do here? And the Holy Spirit said, well, you need to pray for him because I want to heal him. And so I looked at that little kid and, you know, the smell was just so pungent. And I remember thinking, you know what? This is what it's going to be about. If I can't deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ to broken people who have no other hope, then what else can I do? And I put my hand on that little kid as he was squirming around and kind of crying. And, and I began to pray and I said, Lord Jesus, will you touch this little child? And the mom just staring blankly at me, wondering what kind of voodoo I was doing over her kid. Just didn't close her eyes or nothing. And I'm trying to be like, okay, you need to pray with me or something, you know. <laughs> and through the translator, I looked at that, that mom after I finished praying. I said, now put your kid on the ground. And that mama took that little baby and set him on the ground. I took that little kid's hand and he took a step. And then he took another step. And that mama, I looked up as I... And her eyes were streaming with tears because that baby was walking for the first time. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit said, this is what you're created to do. To establish my kingdom in the nations. And every place that you put your foot down, I will give it to you. And from that little kid, we saw blind eyes open, deaf ears open, lame people walking. Mute people speaking and miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. The next village we went to, the village chief was blind, Muslim, devout Muslim, came forward and said, pray for me in this somewhat arrogant attitude. And my buddy Anthony put his hands on his eyes and prayed for him, took his hands off, and the guy could scream it because he was seeing for the first time. And the entire village gave their life to Jesus. The entire village. And then 
I come back here, and I don't remember exactly what year it was, and God began to move our heart to see that kind of demonstration of power here at Lamar University. And in the last two years, you can ask our small group leaders and those that have been with us, we've seen bones being created and legs being healed and eyeballs pop back into socket. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating. We've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And here's what happens. This identity starts beginning to emerge in you, that it's really not about who I am. It's about who he is. And all that I am is consumed in this man. It's in him. Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17, in him we live and we move and we have our being. We are his offspring. Thanks, Lane. We are his offspring. We are his children. And that is the identity that every one of us has been created to live in. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're in the ministry or not in the ministry. It doesn't matter if you're in the medical field, if you're in the legal, legal practice, if you're in the, if you work for the city of Beaumont or if you work at the highest building that there is in Houston, you have a calling to know and experience this person, Jesus. And it's not just a set of beliefs that, that I'm saying you have to follow. It's not just a, a moral standard that you adhere to. Because listen, every religion has a set of rules at the base of what it believes. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has a person that you have to know to be able to do what he's called you to do. And if you don't know him, there's no way you can duplicate his nature in your life. You have to know him. Tonight, listen, I know many of you guys come from many different backgrounds. And I'm telling you, we need students like you who know and experience the presence of God in every sector of our society, every part. We need you in the engineering field. We need you in the medical field. We need you in every field. But we don't need you in those fields just to be good people who keep good rules and do good things and are miserable inside. We need students who know how to access the presence of God wherever they're at, at the refinery, at the doctor's office, at HEB, at Walmart, that they can touch the presence of God and say, listen, God cares about you and he wants to heal your body. And some of you think, well, that's just not the lifestyle for me. It is the lifestyle for every believer. Jesus said, because I go to the Father He said, I will send the Holy Spirit in John chapter 17. Then he looks at his disciples and he says, greater works will you do than this because I go to the Father. John later records in 3 John when he says, just as Jesus is, so are we in this world. So are we. And this whole destiny, this whole design of what God wants us to be, he laid it out in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the standard, not that we're looking up to reach, but he's the baseline. This is where we start being like him. From the moment that you gave your life to him, he redeemed you, cleansed you of all your human nature, your sinful nature, so you could begin to walk in the newness of life. And then he said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit, 
The Bible says whoever is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And the moment you give your life to Jesus, he puts the Holy Spirit inside of you. And he begins to immediately teach you how to think about God. And as a result, you begin to learn how to think about yourself. The two greatest challenges in life you'll face is what you think about God and what you think about yourself. And unless you get the first one correct, you'll always be confused about the second. Unless you see God for who he is, because if you continue to perceive God as angry at you and God doesn't care about you or God's trying to teach you this horrible lesson or good lesson through horrible things, your perception of God is wrong and then you always feel condemnation in your life. God is not against you. He's for you. And that's just not a little trite phrase we say to pat you on the back. Look, God's for you. Listen, he's really for you. Romans chapter 8 says it like this. If he did not spare his own son, but with him freely gives us all things. God didn't spare his own son, but with him he freely gives us what? All things. Peter later says that everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us. But you discovering and believing that you are called by the living God to live a lifestyle that only you can live. And it won't fit any of these boxes. It won't fit any of these identity ID tags that you want to wear around your neck. You won't fit at Verizon. You won't fit at the Walmart. You won't fit just as a married person or just as a dad. It won't fit because you're called to be something unique. You're called to be who you are in Christ Jesus. I look at the life of the apostles and I think those guys did everything possible to totally defy a job description. I mean, Paul went from this town to that town, planting churches and making tents and talking from Caesar to the Sanhedrin to the mobs to didn't have a job description. You know what I'm saying? Didn't even have a steady paycheck for crying out loud. But he had a calling to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations. That's you and me. Now listen to me. This semester can be like every other semester. This semester can be a time when you just struggle with what is God's will for my life. What am I supposed to be doing? You can struggle with the sin thing and keep going to the washateria and trying to get your life cleaned up and kind of just camp out there. Or you can say, God, I'm ready to move forward in my walk with you. I'm ready to get to a place of growth and not just aspiring to grow. I want to get to a place where I hear your voice every day, where I can demonstrate your power, where I can move by being led by the Holy Spirit. It's not so high up that you can't reach it. It's not so far away that you can't touch it. It's right here in your heart where you believe. It's right here. And I'm telling you, I'm making you, making you a promise. If you will join with us, If you'll plug in and you'll say, look, I want to move forward in this journey. There are hundreds of students on this campus that are waiting for you to begin to live out this calling. Hundreds. I would go to say thousands of students that are waiting for you to be the child of God. Not intimidated by the box that you're in now, but your life being directed because you constantly see Jesus. Constantly see him. The more you see him, the more you begin to define who you are. This is what I'm trying to tell you tonight. You can go the rest of this semester 
looking at yourself in a mirror, hoping that something changes, but never changing anything about your life. Or you can take the leap of faith and say, I'm going to follow this Jesus. I'm going to plug in with a small group leader. I'm going to plug in with the church here in the city and say, Lord Jesus, teach me how to be like you. There's no pride in that. There's no room for arrogance because the closer you get to him, the more humble you become that he is actually leading you. Right? Yesterday, or day before yesterday, I was at prayer over here at the Setzer Center where every Tuesday night, Josh and his crew get together and pray. And I was teaching the the students how to pray over each other, how to see things as God reveals them while they're praying and how to speak that. And we were just going, we were having a good time. It was great. And so one of the things I was just saying, I want us to just take some time and ask God to show you what his desire is for Lamar. And I want to say about 99% of the kids in that room, there's about 25, 30 of us in that room, God spoke to them his desire for this campus. And you know what I see? I, I, my hope for Lamar University is not to fill up the science auditorium. My hope for Lamar University is you. I want to see you every morning when you get up and you open your Bible or you turn on your worship music or you begin to talk with God. God shows up in your room and begins to download in you his desire for the day. Where he begins to say, I'm going to put you at lunch with this person. They look like this. They were in this dress. And I want you to tell them this. Say, is that possible? It happens a lot. When you're walking from the Setzer Center to the Gray Library or wherever, and the Holy Spirit says, go and talk to that person. Where you see somebody in a wheelchair across campus, and without thinking, you just start running toward them because this is an opportunity to see them come out of a wheelchair. And we've seen that happen here on this campus. Would you be brave enough, daring enough to actually believe that God's word is true when he says, you can do greater works than this. Would you be brave enough, daring enough to believe that when he says you're the son or the daughter of the most high God, that you can take on that identity? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, and I'll wrap up with this passage. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 25. He said to his disciples, if any man desires to come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If any man, now who's he talking to? The disciples, those that we intentionally have chosen to follow him. And some of you, you need to make that intentional choice tonight. But the process or the the, the criterion for following him is this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. You know what that means? It means all these identities that we keep putting on ourselves, we have to say, this isn't where the life is. It's in him. I can't find purpose in this any longer. Not that I'm casting off the the obligations of living and the responsibilities that I have, but I'm not going to look to this to give me identity. My identity comes from him. And when I wake up in the morning and I open my Bible or I'm spending time with the Lord, sometimes I wake up in the morning, I just sit on the edge of my bed and start conversation with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Lord, thanks for letting me get up this morning. Stayed up too late last night. What do you want to do today? And he begins to speak. Jesus said, you have to deny yourself. And literally that word deny means to 
to reject the identity of who you are like it's another person and follow him. See, denying yourself isn't beating up on yourself. A lot of people interpret it as like self-condemnation. We should walk around like, like a monk or something. Oh, I'm such a horrible person. That's not denying yourself. That's really a subtle form of pride. Because you're saying something about yourself that's not true. So your opinion about yourself is higher than the opinion that God has given. And that's pride. So beating yourself up is not denying yourself. But saying to yourself, I'm not living for these titles, boxes, identities any longer. I might fill these roles, but my identity is I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And then he says, take up his cross. So I know that this is not an immediate one-time decision. Although it has a beginning, it has a continual process of constantly saying, I'm not going to be like me anymore. I'm going to be like him. I'm not going to be like me anymore. I'm going to be like him. And Holy Spirit, I need you to teach me what he's like. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all the things that he taught. All the things. And so it's important that you have the Holy Spirit's voice guiding your life. And every day, one day after the other, it's like one foot in front of the other, you begin on this mission of following Jesus. And I'm, am I going to tell you it's easy and that everybody can do it and that you're never going to have problems? Heck no. You're going to fight hell. You're going to have people look at you like, oh, you think you're so spiritual. You think you're all Christian now. And you know what the answer is? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm thinking. I'm spiritual and I'm following Jesus and my life is not my own anymore. I'm walking in a level of getting close to him. And if it costs my great relationship with you, then I'm willing to let that go if necessary. Listen, when I started following Jesus at 16, things rocked my world. My parents thought my, they lost their kid somewhere in Dallas. I remember people the closest to me looked at me and criticized the zeal that I had to follow Jesus. I remember being told, listen, one day the zeal will die out. It's been 20 years. It's still going. Don't let dead people tell you have to, how to live. You have a purpose. You have a purpose. And it's not just about doing signs and wonders. It's about establishing God's kingdom in the world. How do you do that? You have to make the commitment to cast aside who you are and say who he is is more important. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at icathedral.org or on social media via Instagram and Facebook, or most easily by downloading our app, Cathedral Church, in the app store of your choice. Until next time, keep living that not-so-normal Christian life.